This is the Tech Talk for Accountants show with your host, Andrew Lassis, where every week we have a new guest to discuss the latest technology, apps, tips, and tricks to help you improve your accounting firm. This episode is brought to you by Tech for Accountants, an IT firm that specializes in cybersecurity for the small accounting firm. Many of our clients used to work at big firms that had all this crazy security and then went to work for themselves, and while they knew it was important to have great IT security, they just have too many other things to worry about and don't have enough time to actually learn this stuff. What we do is help bridge the gap so that even small accounting firms have great security at a fraction of the cost of doing it themselves, and it's all done for you. We offer listeners to the show a complimentary IT audit and consultation. Just go to tech4accountants.net slash podcast. And you can book a free IT audit. Again, that's tech, the number four, accountants.net slash podcast. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Tech Talk for Accountants show. I'm your host, Andrew Lassis with Tech for Accountants, IT specializing in the accounting industry. And with us today is Nick Sinclair, who's an industry-leading speaker on accounting outsourcing. He founded TOA Global in 2013 to address the most common pain points accounting and bookkeeping firms face, including capacity, profitability, people, and time. Now, as founder of one of the fastest-growing accounting outsourcing companies in the world, he's an in-demand speaker who's helped more than 1,200 firms hire and train the best talent to form their global team. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Really excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to hear, kind of give me a background on how does how does Nick Sinclair, because outsourcing wasn't your entire career. So how did you how did you get let's let's back up maybe 2010, 11, 12. Toa started 2013. What were the kind of the rumblings to get into that? Yeah, look, I ran a financial services business. So we were mainly a financial planning business. We had accounting, we had lending. And we were fast growing. We were struggling to keep up with the demand from our clients. We were 100% user of zero. So we were an early adopter of zero. We were a platinum user. Um, but we were struggling to find staff. Um, I worked a, a huge amount of hours, love what I do, but I was just struggling to keep up with the volume of work. And, and I happened to be in the Philippines for a, a global leadership retreat for a group called Entrepreneurs Organization. I was on the board uh, for Queensland in Australia and happened to be there, stumble across one of our members who had his back office there. And it was like this aha moment. It was like, hang on, this could be the solution for me. So I ended up going back to Australia, setting up our own back office and then um, went on a, what our the president of the board, funny enough, was a guy called Rob Nixon who coaches accountants. And he asked me to go on the roadshow he was going on or he had created called Capitalizing on the Cloud. 1300 accountants over 13 cities and he said look come and talk about what you're doing with your back office and it was more an intention for me to speak about what I was doing and he was really coaching client his clients being accounting firms to move away from obviously compliance and move to more advisory um, and after the first event I had nine firms come to me saying look love what you do we don't want to replicate what you're doing can we have you got some spare desks and I had 20 spare desks and I looked and I went, well, if I do that, that will cover all of the costs of the office. It'll cover the office facility staff, the recruiter, the HR staff, all these extra staff I needed because I was running in another country. So those five firms came on board. But by the end of that roadshow, 
I'd sold 90 roles. So suddenly I had 90 people and then it went to 200, then 400, then 800, just kept doubling. I mean, we're, we're now over 3,300 people and putting on about 200 people a month. So it's sort of just evolved into a business um, over that early few years. So you're basically just on there sharing your own experience and then people are like, can I piggyback off of that? And then instead of, so basically you were your first client and then other people were like, I want to be your client too. And so when, when they came to you initially, were you thinking I'm going to start turning this into a business or did you just see there was this giant demand just like that? I should capitalize on it because you already had your advisory firm. So were you in the mindset of, I'm just going to drop that and go all in on this? Was it 50-50 side hustle? What kind of, where was your mind at during that? Yeah, I'm, I was, I call it entrepreneurial. I just say, yes, I like growth. I get bored easy. So Me too. I just, I just said yes. Um, and I probably didn't realize the extreme of what I was saying yes to until you, you know, never a year do. down the road. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then it was like, hang on, this is like, now I'm working like two jobs. I'm working a day shift and then I'm working a night shift just trying to run this other thing. So it was only really at that point I was like, eh, no, I really got to decide. Or, you know, probably two years in, I had uh, got to decide because it was just a side thing. I never really thought it would be anything bigger than that. Um, and then, so I was just kept saying yes enough times. And then we started building more people and I thought, oh, you know, we'll just keep putting more people around it. And then we just kept growing. And then, then I realized, oh, hang on, this is a great opportunity. It's a, it, it can really help people and it can really make an impact globally as well. So maybe we should just double down on this one and, and merge and exit out of the other one, which I did. So, but yeah, I'd love to say I, I saw a massive need in the market and and then I went and met the need. It was just, I fell into it because I was looking after my own needs first and I yeah. had the same problems that everyone well, else has. And, but I mean, that's going to give you a great opportunity to be able to speak to people because you speak their language. And that's one of the giant things that we had discovered just, you know, being on the outside, seeing there's a need for, for an outsourced IT form, firm specifically for accountants, blah, 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 blah. You know, we saw the need. And I mean, basically it was my client had asked me to do all of this work for him. And I was like, why aren't other people doing this? There's so much work to be done. Is everyone just doing this blanket general thing for the entire industry? And then I looked into it and it's like, yeah, that is what everyone's doing. <laughs> Nobody's actually helping these people with their specific needs. It's how we fell into it. But you were in the boat of, I am having this problem so much. And this is how I solved it. You're like the people on Shark Tank that are like, I was having trouble getting my kids to clean their room. And then I discovered like, I don't know, like <laughs> attack bot and it <laughs> forces my kids to clean. And then all of my friends and neighbors were like, I want this too. And it became a company. So you're, but you're able to speak to those exact pain points of hiring people, retaining talent, the profitability, the training. I mean, there's so much that goes into just having an onshore team as it is. So 
having that gap and you were doing this well before COVID and well before, you know, I'd imagine the last two, three years, it's become a lot more widely accepted than it was when you had initially started it. You know, the movement towards globalization now, I think is a lot more, people are a lot more open-minded to it than they were at that time. Would you say that's correct? Yeah, I think Australia, to be honest, was probably ahead of America in that sense that they were more open to talent because it's just such a smaller country. So we're probably a lot more advanced in Australia with that conversation. But the pandemic significantly fast-tracked America. Like it went from, you know, we can't have people that are not in our office to we don't care where they are now, just we need people. So mm-hmm. it definitely fast-tracked that conversation and, and 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 even in Australia, to be honest, big firms. There's some certain firms that were like, we will never take global talent. We're always going to be local in our country. Came to us and said, "How many can you give us? Like, how quick can we do this?" Right. So it definitely changed people's perception because they realised, well, hang on, if we don't have to be in our office and we don't have to see the team to know that they're working, why do we have to have them right here? Why do we have to pay the most expensive amount? for them why can't we look for the best talent anywhere and why Uh do our people have why can't our people move from say america and why can't they go and live in bali in indonesia or why can't they go and live in europe and still work for us but in the past that would have been you know mary's going to live in bali she's having a life change all right well good luck and see you later now it's like well you used to work for us just work there yeah and i think one of the misconceptions and maybe you can hit on this you had said you're getting the talent from anywhere. I think a lot of people's conception of the local talent versus global talent is that if you are paying somebody a lower dollar amount, you're not going to get the same quality that you would get if it were a local person. And what are your thoughts on that? Look, I think that's people's... um lack of understanding of how it works the accountants in for example south africa where we have offices they go through seven years to become an accountant and to become certified and through articles and to get it their education is significantly harder than most first world countries philippines same thing you know they have a 25 percent pass rate on their cpa it's one of the hardest ones to pass so the quality of people, I would argue, is is probably higher. But the difference is they haven't got the experience in American tax. So they understand debits or credits. They understand how to do that side of it. They just need to be taught the American part. And that's mm-hmm. the bridging that they need. But you, if you were getting someone with you know 20 years of American experience, you'd, you'd expect to pay similar wages. That's the cost arbitrage is because they don't have that local experience. Mm-hmm. but they can't get it quick and they can get trained to be able to do it. And so you could kind of look at it almost like an investment because once they get acclimated to it, it's not like they're going to have to continue and everything has continuing education tied to it. But once they get acclimated and understand it in general, so they already have the foundational concepts, which frankly, a lot of people don't have And when people are coming out of school that don't have real life experience also, 
but they come with this entitlement that schools taught them that, well, yeah, if you have a degree, you should demand six figures without experience because you spent all this money at school. <laughs> school, school, school's not going to stay around much longer if they tell you that in the real world, no one hires people that don't have experience unless you're paying at the lower side of it. But our own experience, though, with um, with having global talent was one of the best workers. And we've had hundreds of employees over the years. One of the best workers that comes to mind was someone that was in the Philippines, hard worker. And, you know, the, the cost arbitrage, it was, it was extremely in our favor and we were going through an agency. So I'm sure the way that works is you pay the, the worker X and then charge the company X plus Y. I mean, that's, that would make the most sense for how um, revenues generated. And so even the X plus Y was still like half of what the entitled people that would come in. Well, I have a degree. I want to be making all this money. And it's like, but you're bad at your job. But the hardest worker, one of the hardest workers we had was in the Philippines. And it was like, oh, not only can they cost less, which is a big benefit, but just because they cost less doesn't mean that you can't get quality either. And I mean, that was our experience. We, on the flip side, though, we've also had we've had people that didn't work out offshore, but we've also had people locally <laughs> that didn't work out. So, I mean, you know, you're dealing with people at the end of the day, too. And no matter what chair they're sitting in, what it's called, I mean you're still dealing with people. So adding a global extension to your team, how does that change the dynamics inside of a firm, especially if they didn't already have a remote team to begin with? It's like having another office is how we position it because all of the team members work within our facilities. So it's like, it's just them creating another office. But I think that's one of the biggest challenges that that firms do have is that whole people management and not enough focus on people. So if you've got really good process, then it really works well. If you've got really poor process or average process, it exposes the process. So it also exposes firms' ability to be able to train and how capable they are at doing that when it is remote. But I think that, you know, that's the fortunate part with the pandemic is that you know, remote taught us we had to use Zoom. We had to do things remotely. We couldn't do it face-to-face. -face. So the biggest thing we see is that firms, when they treat it like another office and it's just their team are in another office and it happens to be in another country, then that's typically the best way. But whatever culture things you do locally, you just apply the same to your global team. It's just changing your mindset from, you know, everyone sits to be this locally to, well, hang on, we've just got a team of the best talent in the best countries. And even when you do have talent in separate offices, and I, I never really thought about it that way, but we had, oh, we had six offices, but two of the offices, it was kind of like the North office versus the South office. And, um, and they were maybe 20, 30 minutes apart from each other. And, but we were all on the same team at the end of the day, you know, it like we, we have a competitive spirit, but it wasn't necessarily like they're bad and we're good or anything like that. But 
I had never, I'd never heard the, the outsourcing uh, conversation put that way with you basically just have another office and that is all that it really has to be. And you're right. It doesn't matter where it was. Cause I mean, we were communicating different offices via Slack and just because they were 25 ish minutes away, they might as well have been 10 hours away, 24 hours away. It wouldn't have made a difference because it's all wires and lights and <laughs> everything else. And that's the whole point is when you treat it like that and then you treat them as an integral part of your team, as not just some low cost labor sitting somewhere else, when you invest in them as people and as humans like you should with your local team and you want to fast track and advance their careers as much as you want to advance your local people, that's where the magic happens. And that's really where the benefit and success comes from it. But where people, and this is a problem locally, I find is that people, employers of firms and firm owners and partners, we're not focusing enough on our people. We're giving them a job. We're not helping them create a career, which is why retention's a problem because they come in, they get trained and they're like, hang on, I don't see a career here. I just see a job to where the firms are providing careers and really investing in their people and helping them to develop and grow quicker to achieve what they want to achieve. And it's different for everyone. Some people want to be managers. Some want to be partners. Some never want to move beyond an event, you know, an intermediate or senior accountant. But it's understanding where they do want to be and helping them to get there. And that's helping them to have a career because then they won't leave. Then they'll be happy. And then you won't have a staffing problem. But, you know, very few firms focus, you know, people are our biggest asset. You know, when you look at an accounting business, it's a leveraged business. We need people. The technology will never be able to do 100% of what the people do. We're a relationship-based business. But the problem is, we don't invest enough time in actually focusing on our people. I look at it as like a factory. If you had a factory pumping out, you know, product, it would be like not actually investing in fixing the machinery and maintaining the machinery to make sure that it is an optimal productivity. We do that with our own people. We just don't invest enough time because we're so busy being busy. We don't take time to actually make them better. And then suddenly they get sick of doing, you know, 16 hours during tax season. They're like, this is not for me. I'm out. And then the firm owners are shocked. It's like, it shouldn't be surprising. You know, they weren't given the career that they really deserve. And, and, you know, people will do the work if they know it's, if it's worthwhile in the longer term for them as well. Mm -hmm. And one of the, the concerns I know a lot of uh, firm owners will have would be regarding how their own clients are going to feel. And I know with, with um, at least in, in the United States, with personal returns, you have to give a disclosure that it's being done overseas or something to that extent. And with corporate, it's, it's like, yeah, here, here you go. We, we got it done. So are, I'd assume there has to be some sort of pushback from local clients or what is, what does that initial thing look like? Cause for us, when we started doing it right in the beginning of COVID and basically our response, if, if our clients were going to be mad about it was just, you know, it's, it's crazy times it's COVID, you know, we, we were doing this temporarily. And then when our clients were like, Oh yeah, that guy's great. I love him. And it's like, Oh, 
well, that was not what we expected. We were playing defense and we just realized we got great hires. So, so what, what is some of the response that uh, clients see when a firm makes the transition into that or how do they navigate that usually? Yeah, it's an interesting one. And I look at my accounting firm that I had in Australia. I had one Australian and, and nine people that were, you know, Chinese, Filipinos, um, you know, Indians, um, Vietnamese. I had every nationality in my Australian accounting firm. So when I, I look at it, I'm like, most firms are quite multicultural, which is a good thing. But the typically, you know, if a client is worried about their work being done offshore, it's normally one of two things. It's data security is obviously the big one. Is my information going to be safe or is it going to be used for something that it shouldn't be? And the second one is, is the quality going to be there? And what we typically find is when people understand the quality of work is a firm issue, it's not a person issue. It's either a process is broken or they haven't been trained to do it. When you get beyond that and, and the client experiences better service because the firm has more capacity and capability now, it's a real non-event. Like I, even with my own accounting firm, we started adding more value to clients. So we didn't go and scream it from the clouds. We basically just started adding more value to clients, turning things around quicker. Um, we ran events every month for our clients. We would run educational events in person, teaching business owners how to do something better than what they're doing. We were a bit hesitant about doing one on offshoring, but we ended up going, you know what? We do it. We're adding real value to our clients. We should be proud of it. The team members are on our website. People never really ask if they're sitting in the Philippines or in our office here. We ran the offshoring event. We got four times as many clients come to that than any other event ever. Wow. Because they have the same challenges we have. They can't find staff. We should be advising our clients on how to be innovative and the best practices. And if you're doing that, you're showing that you're innovative. If you want old school businesses and some clients, do, I mean, some firms do want those, but if you want innovative businesses, the majority is they're probably already doing it. They just want to know that the quality is not going to drop because you have a global team, which is a firm process and, and training problem if it if there is. And the second thing is they just want to know that your IT is strong. They want to know that the data is not going to be basically, you know, move somewhere else and sold off. And that's an easy one because, and you do you do this all day, every day. If you set up the IT structure right, they can sit anywhere in the world. As long as, you know, the safety and security of that structure is put in place, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I think it really comes down to people's understanding and conception of how those things work. And I'll skip like geeking out on the data security part too much. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, people with their hesitancy of, well, the cloud, I can't see it. I can't touch it. Da, da, da. And it's like, you use TeamViewer to get on your other computer and you have no problem with that because you can go and touch that computer somewhere else. Like that's all the cloud is. It's basically TeamViewer onto, onto Microsoft's big computer. Like that's, that's like what it is at the end of the day. So you put the right security measures in place and then people accessing it from wherever they access it. It's not going to make a difference, especially if you have an audit trail because uh, that's that's something you know people when when they work with us is even though we're hiring you to make sure that we are secure, how can we be sure that we can trust you? Which it's a good question to ask. I kind of wish more people did ask it. 
But when there's an audit trail of every click you do and every move you make and everything that you look at, it actually adds a whole lot more security than if you were in the office and just the blase, well, we're all in an office. No one's going to do that. You know, that's that's the security without it. So it actually forced us to be have even more security than we already did, not only just to protect our clients, but if you are not able to just look at someone's screen all day, every day, you know, you've got to be able to, to keep tabs on what's happening and protecting client data is huge. I mean, it's literally what our business is focused on, but being able to, to have those pieces in place and being able to see what is going on and it adds a whole new level of accountability and protection and just keeping things back on the, the side of, um, of offshoring. What are, what are some of the things that you guys have in place for people's questions like that? Yeah, look, I, I mean, our IT team is, we have to be extremely strong. We run corporate level IT and security and safety. So there's so much content that we have that shows what we do. Um, our offices are built up for exactly this. I mean, we have work areas. So we run a floor plate, 70% of its work area, 30% downtime. In that work area, you can't take mobile phones. You can't take devices. There's no printers. There's no USB drives. There's, you know, the computers are locked down that they, team members can only work on what they're working. Obviously, everything's monitored within the environment. Um, where the challenge is, if, if I call it a challenge, is that, Ultimately, our team members work on on their client's infrastructure and our IT guys most of the time find holes in our client's infrastructure, meaning there's exposure for things. So that's where obviously great companies like yours can help to get the structure right because most people just don't really invest the time and energy into that because they think, oh, my computer's in my office. It's safe. Eh, maybe not. <laughs> so it's... Yeah. But yeah, I mean, we can definitely help that structure, but because they work on the client's infrastructure, that's why, you know, we're really, we we love companies that, you know, like yours that help people get that right because it just protects them. Because the last thing we ever want is because someone's offshoring that they have a bad experience, which, you know, we've never had, but so we don't want it to be blamed on offshoring when it's actually not an offshoring issue. It's actually how you set up your own IT. Right. And, and that same happens with us. If something happens on someone's firm and they're like, you should have stopped it. And it's kind of like blaming like the security company for <laughs> opening the front door and letting a stranger in and then, and then getting upset that, that the security system didn't stop you from opening your door and letting them in. So, but I mean, people don't know what they don't know. That's why they hire uh, outside yeah. professionals, but having, Having those things in place, though, you know, just eliminating all of even the off chance of things happening. You know, I, I like to use the analogy. It's like wearing a seatbelt when you drive a car. Like I haven't I, I haven't ever been in an accident where a seatbelt was necessary. So if we just look at my track record and history, we've got let's see 35 so 35 years of driving where i have never once needed a seatbelt. 
So one could infer I am not a person that gets in car accidents. However, I still put one on because I don't want to be in one bad car accident where I wish I had it. And that's how a lot of these things are is just because it hasn't happened to you yet doesn't mean that that you just completely ignore it and chalk it up as it's never going to happen to me because it only has to happen one time for you to really feel it and then be like, oh, maybe I, uh, you know, maybe I should have looked into this, but, you know, these things are all kind of uh, hindsight easier to look at. But keeping keeping the train on the tracks, though, what what are some of the the things that, say someone's running a firm, when should they be considering the conversation of looking into offshoring? Yeah, I think it's an interesting, yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I think that what we always say to firm owners is when, when are you working on your capacity plan? When are you working on your people strategy? So a lot of people work out their capacity but they don't actually work out the people plan. So they go, oh, next year we want to increase our revenue by 20%, but they're not working out, well, how many more people do we need for that? They're just typically going from a revenue basis. So when we're always saying to clients, you need to map your people strategy and then you need to start building capacity. You shouldn't always get to 100% or 110% capacity before you go and hire someone. So it's really thinking in advance because locally or globally, it doesn't really matter, but you know, it takes up to 60 days to hire someone. Then it takes another, you know, two to three months to really get them up to, to where they are. So we're talking five months. Really, if I was to go and hire someone within our business internally, we're really looking six months before they become effective, 12 months before they become, they know our business well enough to be able to really just run fast. So we always typically say, look, you need to be thinking, you know, six to 12 months at events, but you know, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of clients that are like that. A lot are, you know, we don't need any more team. We're full. And then a week later, they'll ring and say, oh, we need another five people. And you're like, well, what changed? <laughs> I mean, it's a good problem, but it's still, so for us, it's trying to teach firms how to really focus on their people strategy, build out that capacity plan and hire ahead. Because this is the one challenge when you lose a team member or when you don't have enough team members, your existing team have to pick up the work and suffer. They have to work longer hours. There's higher expectations on them. And at some point, they're going to get jack of doing that. They're going to go, you know what? I'm not getting paid to do this extra work. I'm having to cover because we lost, you know, Mary left us six months ago and they haven't replaced her. And that's a risk that your existing team are going to go, you know what? I'm out. I'm just, you know, there's no benefit for me. Yeah, it's a really good point. And I know, as you were saying that, I was just like, oh, man, I'm so guilty of hitting the capacity. <laughs> thing. Like, luckily, we we've got, yeah, we have we have good processes in place. So that can be my, my fallback excuse. Um, but, but I was actually staring at the top of the show where we're hiring someone else and just in my head, the, okay, we have to go through and get the applications. And then we have to get them trained on the process. And then we make assumptions on what they know based on their resume and prior experience. But then we uncover, oh, you didn't know the whole purpose of your job. Like we had hired this one girl once. Oh my gosh. She 
she um, came in to do HR. She was doing internal books and HR for us. And, um, and on the first day, I should have been like, this isn't the right fit. Like her resume was fantastic. Wonderful girl, just person personality wise. And on the first day, I'm showing her, okay, we use QBO. And she's like, okay, I use QBD at my last, uh, at my last place. I'm sure it's not that different. And so I'm going through and showing her and she, she had asked me, she was like, how'd you get all the transactions uh, from yesterday into, into your, your feed? And I was like, um, I don't know. It just automatically happens. You just sync it with the bank. She's like, oh, at my last job, like my whole job was pretty much getting those transactions and moving them into QuickBooks for the other person to manually put them all together. I was like, your job is like 30 bucks a month SAS from, <laughs> for, that was your full-time job. And she's like, yeah, that's what I did all day, every day. And I was like, but weren't you like HR? She's like, I was HR's assistant and red man, flags everywhere. <laughs> oh man, it was red flags everywhere. And it was like, maybe it's not going to be that bad. And then, and then after like two months, she made like a $15,000 mistake. And it was like, okay, like this is just the worst idea ever. And that's one of the, the worst things that often we hire too slow, but we also fire too slow. We don't make, we don't see the warning signs there that we should be, you know, we should be setting them free. We should be helping them because they're probably suffering in the job because they're not capable anyway. But I think that the other part of it is, is we also don't know when people, and, and that's probably an easier example because they're not in a normal role that you do, if that's the word. But when accountants bring people in and they see the productivity rates are only two times, you know, what they're costing and they go, oh, that's okay. You know, they're still getting two times the work out, but it's like, well, no, they should be getting three to five times out. Like good people are, are getting that. We accept average as a standard. And what happens is when you accept average as a standard is that that's the type of person you attract to your firm. You know, winners want to work with winners, like high performers work with high performers. And that's why the big four in a lot of cases, they attract this talent because they, they think they're going to come and work with high performers. And if you want your firm to attract good talent, you need to have good people because otherwise you're going to attract the average. And if you won't help someone to succeed, and then when they're not capable, move them on to a, you know, free their future up and get someone that can, that says a lot to your team and your team take note. And that's part of the challenge of retention. Yeah. When other people see that other, you know, the, their coworkers are putting out way, way less production. It's like, well, we're getting paid the same. I'm working twice as hard and everyone's cool with that person not working as hard, then it's just going to start breeding mediocrity, like you said. And then everyone comes to the agreement that the mediocrity is the gold standard. And we had one, um, this is actually another great example. We had changed part of our bonus structure that each new employee or each person in sales in order to qualify for a bonus needed to bring in eight new uh, firms in a two week period, which it was high, but not crazy. It was like, it was 60%. If you took the average, it was in this, it was 60 percentile. It's not cra crazy high. And then, oh, you expect eight. How are you going to do that? 
like that's that's ridiculous no one's ever going to hit it you're doing this just to tease us out blah blah blah. this is unreasonable and then we had hired new people and didn't tell them about the back story and they don't know any different do they they don't know any different and they're doing like 15 20 in a pay period just and we we were just saying to them like good job you're doing what we expect and and the other people are like wait how did it's like because they work hard like you know but we we let we let that mediocrity set in and then when everybody as a team collectively is saying this mediocrity is good then you're almost questioning is it i mean this is what i'm getting from everyone else and then the high performers are like well i guess i'll just go down to being mediocre. So that's why I'm I'm always a fan of you know everybody's working together for the collective good, but you should be in competition with yourself to try to do better and better, which is why I like stuff like golf and um running because it's like I get to I get to determine my destiny. I'm just the kind of person that like wants to achieve more and more. So that's that's why like I play with dynamite with uh <laughs> with like business <laughs> development things. It's like, hmm, we could explode this and this would look really, really cool. And that's you know, part of part of the growth strategy of stuff that we do with um business development and things like that. But Nick, I want to be conscious of your time. Um, where can people learn more about you and Toa? The best way to find me is at LinkedIn. Um, so Nick Sinclair and TowerGlobal.com is probably the best place to learn more about us. And yeah, feel free to reach out and more than happy to have a conversation and, and talk more about people. Yeah, well, it's great having you on the show. And everyone, if you enjoyed the show, please be sure to reach out to Nick, like the show and share it, help grow the show. And thank you, Nick, for being on the Tech Talk for Accountants show. Thanks for having me. Had a great time. Thanks for listening to the Tech Talk for Accountants show. I hope you enjoyed today's guest. And remember, you can go to techforaccountants.net slash podcast to book a complimentary IT audit conducted by a technician certified by the AICPA in cybersecurity. Again, that's tech, the number four, accountants.net slash podcast.